This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Danny M. Lavery. And with me in the studio this week is my dear friend, Diana Stiegel, the creator of the popular French history podcast, The Land of Desire. Diana, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm very excited to be here. I'm so excited too. And I have to say, as you know, I've been um, taking a lot more walks lately and I've been listening to your podcast a lot more as a result lately, such that even though I have known you for years now, when I said your name, I expected to hear your intro music start playing. Well, I do carry it around with me everywhere on a keychain so that, you know, I can launch every conversation with that that theme song. Of course you do. I also just kind of thanks to you, uh, finally finished um, my my very, very long journey through uh, uh, The Philosopher in the Kitchen, um, which is a book that as soon as I started reading, I texted you. I was like, have you ever done an episode on this? I love him. He is my best friend. He has so many theories about what eggs are. It's He's mostly wrong. I just love anybody who's that opinionated about like an oyster, just the the idea of an oyster, the concept of an oyster. He's really- He put a lot of thought into it. That's a man who would write a lot of letters to the editor in 2020. His whole life was a letter to the editor, and it was beautiful. And um, I want to try to channel the spirit of, ooh, am I going to try to say his name? Yes, I can feel myself about to try to say something in French. Uh, Briot Savarin? Is that (laughs) close? I don't know. I just got an email from a listener who listened to my entire episode about pastries and then asked why I insist on saying the word Madeline incorrectly. (laughs) So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like that was a conscious choice I made and not that right. I was like, oh, a, I pronounced it wrong because I don't know how to say it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm actually flattered that they thought that I had that ability and then chose the other one. Thank you, listener. Thank you for that generosity of spirit. I feel like I tend to, when I'm trying to say something in another language, if I'm a little bit familiar with the language, I I feel like I have a decent um, ability either to mimic a sound that I've recently heard um, or or to try to align my voice with a particular type of accent or way of speaking. But I feel like with French, I feel like I'm a kid learning to ride a horse again and French (laughs) is the horse. And they always tell you like, okay, well, like a, a horse can sense your mood and like this horse can tell that I don't know what I'm doing. And as a result, it's becoming more and more difficult to ride. Well, that is also true of the French people. I love you. I love you <laughs> they, too. They, they, they have absolutely, uh, they have, they have sensed my fear and they have exploited that fact. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm going to, um, Try to channel, uh, then if nothing else, like the exuberance of like uh, Mecca Onyanetu, the guy who was um, guessing yes. at French recently <laughs> on the news. Ha, ha, ha. I, 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 I will be punctuating all of today's questions with ha, ha, ha at the end just to... Listen, I support anything that you need to do. And I'm, I'm just thrilled that you're here. I'm thrilled that today is today. Uh, I'm thrilled that uh, we get to help all these people, I hope. And I'm thrilled that I get to read the first letter. Um, because it feels like, maybe not quite like an indictment of my work here, but a little bit of like, okay, okay, you're always saying this. What now? The subject is, so I'm in therapy. Now what? Dear Prudence, 
I have read this and Slate's other advice columns for a few years now, and I know that you and others often recommend therapy to help with any number of problems. I also know that people often say that everyone should have a therapist, even if you don't think you have quote-unquote problems. My question is, how do you do therapy? I'm an extremely anxious person with a history of panic attacks and have seen two different therapists in the last few years trying to do the right thing to get a handle on my anxiety. My first experience was awful. The therapist started every session with, well, what do you want to talk about today? Which felt like a lot of pressure to come up with something to say. So I would offer up a few words, she'd nod, and then we'd sit in awkward silence for the rest of the time, which often ended with me in tears. My second therapist was better, and I was able to attend sessions over telehealth. This kind of worked, and I also told that therapist that I need a lot of guidance in a conversation, but I still never felt that I was really getting anything out of it. Felt like a chore and a waste of money and a source of anxiety rather than a tool against it. Both of my therapists ended up moving on to different jobs, and I felt relieved when they let me know they wouldn't be offering sessions anymore. I know it can take a while to find a therapist who's a good fit, but with my insurance, the options are limited, and honestly, two strikes makes me feel like it's my fault. Am I just bad at therapy? Is there something else I should be doing to get more out of it? People sometimes talk about their therapy sessions like they're life-changing, and I feel like a failure at the thing that's supposed to make me feel better. I have never, by the way, uh, Diana, felt more like a caricature of a therapist than when I read that last line, because my only response to that was like, oh, that's really interesting. Well, uh, you know, why do you think therapy is supposed to make you feel better? <laughs> I have to say that uh, I cheated this week and I submitted my own question for our Dear Prudence section. No, uh, oh. I'm actually reading this thinking, I would love to know what Danny has to say as someone who struggles with this exact problem. Uh, I have some words of comfort for this listener, but uh, personally, boy, would I love to know any advice that you have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I would say, you know, I, I hope that didn't sound like too much of a smartest answer because I, I don't want to suggest that like therapy and increased self-awareness or increased contentedness or better coping skills are somehow like at odds. Like obviously um, you you would like to have therapy improve your life over time rather than make it worse. So that's that's reasonable for sure. I, I suppose just my question is, outside of a vague idea that you should be feeling better, I think this is a good opportunity to say, what are my goals from therapy? You mentioned, letter writer, your anxiety disorder. And so I'm curious, like, is your goal right now simply to treat and manage your anxiety disorder? Because if that's the case, something as just like open-ended as talk therapy might not be the first thing that you want to do with it. Um, anxiety disorders, especially anything like anxiety attacks, often respond really well to a particular type of therapy called CBT. And you can seek out therapists who are specifically trained in this method. It's also a very like straightforward and often self-directed method. There's also ways to get workbooks for it and do a lot of your own work around it. If you're doing anything like exposure therapy, which sometimes they do with anxiety, that's the sort of thing that's especially recommended to do under a therapist's care. So you can do it in very careful, gradually increasing doses of exposure to whatever it is, the thing that causes your anxiety. But you should also probably be talking to a psychiatrist and considering um, your uh, pharmaceutical options as well. So that would be my first piece of advice. If this is just about finding ways to manage an anxiety disorder, a specific diagnosable condition, um, I would say CBT, self-directed work, exposure therapy, and a psychiatrist to talk about medication. Those would be my, my four 
options that I would say rather than just like get yourself a talk therapist and sit on a couch once a week for the indefinite future. Um, I, I wanted to chime in and say, so as I kind of alluded to, I've been on a really similar journey for probably the last two years. Uh, so yes, letter writer, this spoke to me. And there were a couple of things I wanted to say off the bat. One is uh, oh, the line, two strikes makes me feel like it's my fault. So first of all, in two strikes, you're literally still at home plate with holding a baseball bat in your hand. Like you're not even out. So you have another go. <laughs> you still have another go. I have told people and I've had other people tell me that finding the right therapist is it it's like birth control. <laughs> like you, this one didn't work for me. Does that mean I can't have birth control? No, you're just going to mm-hmm. try another one. And it's really annoying. And sometimes you do have to cycle through a few, but the option was never really on the table that I just wouldn't have it. <laughs> there wasn't going to be a point where I was like, well, crossing my fingers, hoping for the best, uh, just going to keep keep plugging away until I can find something that works. And I've kind of tried to take the same approach to therapists, even, even though I, I too have struck out a few times. Um, I wanted to second that, well, two things. I wanted to second that a psychiatrist is also a really important part of this equation. And I say that knowing that with the impenetrable morass of American healthcare that might not be on the table, but finding a psychiatrist was really helpful. And as a kind of a helpful note, it turned out that my psychiatrist gave me uh, an example of what I was looking for. Uh, this is just dumb luck, but the the psychiatrist that I found ended up having the right personality and temperament and structure that I was looking for. And while I haven't found the right therapist, it is really helpful to have a model in my mind for what I'm looking for. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of like when you <laughs> when you break up with someone a bunch of times and in your 20s and then you get to your 30s and you kind of you kind of know what works for you and what doesn't. So you, at least now you're not dating the same person that you were when you were 21. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of how I felt about it. I felt like if if I haven't found the therapist that's right, I do know what it looks like when a therapist is wrong for me. And I mm-hmm. consider that progress. So if I were talking to a letter writer, I would say, hey, Congratulations. You have figured out two types of therapists that don't work for you. What yeah. a bunch of time you've saved yourself. Awesome. Yeah. And I would also add to that. Um, I think sometimes people can go into therapy thinking therapy is something a therapist does at me until I feel better, which kind of positions you as the the client or the patient as this sort of like receptive agent, uh, just like maybe passively absorbing therapy through osmosis. When in fact, uh, you know, different types of therapy have very different goals. For example, if you were seeing a psychoanalyst, you know, there are a lot of psychoanalysts who would say there's there's no goal uh, in in treatment. The the goal is analyzing, continue to analyze. And some of the like specific goals, uh, you know, might be uh, resolving the transference neurosis, which you may have no interest in doing. So I, I think to that end, you should be researching whatever therapist you're speaking to, you know, are they trained as 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 part of a psychoanalytic uh, tradition? Are they trained in narrative therapy? Are they are they trained in EMDR? Are they are they trained in family systems? Are they trained in somatics? Um, narrative therapy. I might have already said narrative therapy. And if so, I apologize. Like 
that's something that you need to do a little bit of research in first and learn more about their particular um, training and figure out whether or not that appeals to you. And then if your therapist does something that distresses you, and I realize this is going to sound challenging and it will be difficult, it is incumbent upon you as the client, and this is assuming, by the way, that they're not doing something dreadful like asking you for money um, or telling you that they think you're a bad person or telling you like, hey, I just really want to talk about me for half an hour. Can we do that? Like, obviously, if they're doing anything like like violating professional ethics, that's a great reason just to go. But if they do something that is not necessarily um, ill-intended, but it freaks you out, you've got to tell them. And you might not be able to do it in the moment because you might feel really activated. You might feel really panicked. You might feel really intimidated. So it's not something that I want to say like either like just fucking deal with it, walk it off and say, hey, bub, I don't like it when you say, what do you want to talk about? It makes me feel anxious. Stop it. But, um, you know, you might need to write it down and say, this is really challenging for me. Uh, Can we talk about that? Um, That is one way in which you will need to be an active co-participant in your therapeutic work because your therapist cannot read your mind and is not necessarily going to assume that if you're crying, like, this isn't a friend. They're not necessarily going to stop and say like, oh my gosh, how can I make you feel better? Of course, there's a, a a burden of care that they should be meeting. But I think one thing that may serve you well in the future is an understanding that your therapist is not necessarily going to try to make you feel better. If something troubles you, you will have to say something, even if that's difficult. And um, even the best therapist in the world, you are still occasionally going to have to say something like, I need more from you right now, or this isn't working for me, or I want to talk about something else, or I want you to give me more guidance, even if their response then is like, that's not the kind of therapy I do. Um, And I I say all of that with, again, a lot of patience and understanding that doing such things when you also have an out-of-control anxiety disorder is very difficult. So I I feel like that's a lot of different kinds of advice. You can do all of those things at (laughs) once. You can do one at a time. You can pick two or three, but lots of good options. The way that I'll close my answer is to say that the things that this letter writer is asking for are not unreasonable. These are reasonable requests. Uh, I am very, very much somebody who went to therapy looking for exactly the same things. I wanted tools. Uh, The idea that you gave earlier of a psychoanalyst, just like, we're just here to unspool and dive deep. Like that is my nightmare. I have anxiety just thinking about that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I would like a checklist. That would be ideal. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is not an unreasonable request. Those forms of therapy are still out there. I am trying to find practitioners of those schools of therapy that are available in my, you know, my health insurance plan right Mm -hmm. now, but they are out there and that is not unreasonable. And you don't need to, you don't need to change the direction of your search. I think you have an idea of what will work for you and what will be valuable. And you, you don't need to change that. That's correct. Just keep plugging away until you can find somebody who will deliver on what you need, but what you need Sounds totally reasonable to me. Uh, And the fact that you've had two therapists and neither of them were able to offer it, it doesn't say anything about the validity of what you're looking for. Just wasn't the right to. Like I said, you've still got a strike left. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Good luck. I think you can absolutely find someone that you can work with. Um, I have a lot of hope for you and faith for you. Let's move on to a great nice Gordian knot of a question. Um, I always love any question that involves something like, I've already told my partner I'm not going to leave them over this. 
And then it's just like, but it sucks. And I kind of want to leave them over it. And I sort of wish I hadn't said it, but also I don't want to leave them. And those are often very near and dear to my heart. Would you read this Uh, one? I will read this one. I will, I will read this one. And then I will jump into my answer. Subject line, secret smoking spouse. I really appreciate the way they have just given us everything we need right up front. Dear Prudence, I've had an ongoing problem with my husband's smoking. I wouldn't have knowingly married a smoker. I take my mental and physical health very seriously, and while not perfect, I am deliberate about all my food, drink, cosmetic choices. We had a very quick and long-distance courtship, during which I saw him smoke maybe twice— He said he only had a cigarette occasionally when out with friends at bars, but that he'd stop it if it bothered me. I know others who did the same and believed him. I was madly in love and readily overlooked it. After we married, I noticed he'd come home smelling like smoke more often than I liked, but I didn't make a big deal out of it. Little by little, I began to understand that this was more of a daily habit. I asked him to stop, and he didn't. I'm 38 weeks pregnant with our second child now, and he promised to quit this time too. He hasn't, and I feel like a fool for still hoping. For many reasons, I want to practice bed sharing, but it isn't safe for babies to bed share with smokers. We have a spare bedroom that I am thinking about asking my partner to sleep in so that we can co-sleep safely. I've tried many times having honest, understanding conversations with him, and he's expressed a desire to quit, which I of course support but then I feel stupid when he briefly tries hypnosis or gum and doesn't see it through. I know quitting is hard. I've tried to be patient. I've told him it grosses me out and makes me have less respect for him when he breaks his promise and disregards his health. I also understand that it isn't up to me. After eight years and lots of broken promises, how much can I expect this to change? How can I move on? I've told him I won't leave him over it when he asked, but I can't seem to move past this disappointment I feel in him and it hurts our relationship. So the first thing I'll say is that this is actually the question I think I spent the most time puzzling over. I wrote like four drafts of my Mm -hmm. notes and I think I went back and forth and I like, I I was a pendulum. I I got a lot of feelings about this one. Uh, (laughs) um, And I will say that I understand where the letter writer is coming from. And I mean, my grandfather died of esophageal cancer. He smoked cigars every day, a million times a day. And when my sister and I were little kids, we would go to visit him and we would come home and have to go to the doctor because we were coughing so bad and our asthma had been triggered and all this other stuff. So I want to start by saying that this is not an unreasonable thing to be mad about. (laughs) Apparently, I'm just here to validate everybody's concerns today. Uh, This is a reasonable thing. It's a reason why smoking is like the second thing that OkCupid asks you about. It is a deal breaker for lots and lots of people. So, you know, getting that out of the way, this is not an overreaction. But there's a lot to unpack (laughs) in Mm -hmm. this letter. The first thing that I kind of want to get to the heart of is what's the real goal here? Right. Because there's a there's a couple things going on. Uh, there's concerns about the impact that smoking will have on bed sharing. There is a lot of grief and disappointment and a lot of like just outrage. And then there's the struggles around smoking itself. Mm-hmm. So without wanting to let's go through each of those three arguments. Yeah. The first one that I wanted to tackle was the co-sleeping. 
I don't want to open up a can of worms. I don't want to belabor a point, especially because this is not the purpose of your of your letter. But let's also face that it's not recommended to expose children to secondhand smoke. It is also not recommended to bed share with a child under four months old. So there's a lot of choices that are going on. And I don't think that that particular line of argument is going to serve either of you very well. It's a pretty shaky foundation. So I think we should move on to some of the other ones. I I think, though, that's also relevant. Yeah, I, I, I am of the same mindset. I think not that this would suddenly solve the letter writer's problem, but I also think that she should rethink wanting to co sleep with a newborn. Um, and, and my stance there, in addition to, you know, the fact that the AAP recommends you don't do that is also without saying like, I want to tell other people all the way across the board, how to parent. I think sometimes any decision that has to do with like constant, constant access to you as the parent. And again, I'm not saying like, just leave your, you know, five month old to like cry it out. Like who cares? Um, I, I think sometimes there are certain ways of responding to anxiety or uncertainty, which is just like, I am going to be a hundred percent available to my kid at all times. They will always feel secure attachment. They will never know for a second, like my absence. And I just feel like that is a recipe for eventually your kid, like wanting to mainline Mountain Dew and camels and run away from you at high speeds. And again, I, I'm, I'm extrapolating a lot from that point. I just want to put in a plug for Think about ways that you can be available for a newborn that also involve you occasionally getting a minute to yourself. Um, I'm not going to go that far. Uh, and I, <laughs> Sorry, I'm just like, <laughs> I don't like it. And I think you're probably going to be a, a hovering parent and you should stop. And you're right. I'm getting us too far off track. I'll corral myself. I think I just want to focus the reader to the to the fact that I don't think that's a helpful argument for mm-hmm. her to be making. That's all. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think that that's going to be a sustainable foundation uh, if they're going to move forward here. So then we get to the second argument, which is more around grief and disappointment. And I totally get it. Uh, I, I completely understand it. But at this point, I would say if you are not willing to divorce over this and you are about to have two kids together, I don't think this is productive. If your husband came to you and said, and it, kind of reading between the lines of this letter, it sounds like he kind of has. Uh, If your spouse is coming to you to say, I'm so sorry, Uh, I might have been in denial myself about the level of smoking and maybe my smoking has kind of gotten out of control since since we first met. Mm -hmm. And I'm really sorry and I'm going to be really upfront with you about the level of smoking that I do. I don't think that the letter writer would be happy. I don't don't think that would be the end of the story. I, I... and fair enough. Uh, I think the letter writer just wants their husband to stop. They just want him to stop smoking. And that's also reasonable. But if that's the case, then let's try and move away from the feelings that are coming out of that grief, out of that sadness, uh, out of that resentment, and just move on to the third part, which is you want your husband to stop smoking. And it sounds like he's trying to stop smoking. You said he's made a few different uh, efforts here. And I think at this point, we just have to acknowledge that your husband has an addiction. It is an addiction. Mm-hmm. We know lots of things about addiction in 2020. And we know that it's, it's a, it is a, a thing in his brain going on right now that he is, it, it takes monumental work to, to overcome addictions. And if we can separate the, 
the morality of the idea of him smoking away from the idea that he's smoking, I think that there will be a lot less anxiety in this relationship. Like there's so much in here about her sadness that she feels like that he's choosing his smoking over her and the kids. And, and it's just a lot of pain that isn't going to make a difference. That's not how addiction works. Like you, people don't get shamed into quitting. (laughs) It sounds like he, he really wants to quit and he is trying to make an effort and that's what matters. So everything else after this is just your, your husband trying to fight a disease. And if you have decided that you're not going to leave him, then you are his partner in this. You you are, you've made that decision. And that means you're going to be together fighting this demon rather than thinking of your husband as the demon, if that makes sense. Yeah. And of course, um, I, I, I think there was something Diana in the sort of like, I would never have married him if I had known, but I'm not going to leave him. That feels to me like part of what's going on here is this unconscious sense of, I would never have married him if I'd known. But since I only found out now, it's kind of not fair for me to get truly mad about it. So I have to be okay with it, but I'm not okay with it. And so like, there's this kind of desire to engineer a situation where like, well, we're going to have a sleeping arrangement where it would be dangerous for him to be in the same room. So now he has to go for the sake of the baby. And I can kind of point to the baby as something that's like more important than me. So it's not me pushing for it. It's the baby. And now I can kind of create a situation where maybe six months from now, maybe a year from now, maybe two years from now, we feel more distant from each other. I feel more alone in the care for the kids. He feels kind of boxed out and then we have to get divorced over it, but it won't feel like I chose to get divorced. And I don't say any of that to recriminate the letter writer or to say like, oh, that's a, a passive aggressive way to try to get divorced. I, I I just think that's the road that this decision will push you down, which is some version of I'm not allowed to say I actually hate this. And, and I, I guess I just want to start by saying you are allowed to leave him over this. You know, even if you promised you wouldn't, um, you're just literally allowed if if it comes to that, if you get really frustrated, if the health risk gets really serious, you're actually allowed to say like, I love you. I don't fault you for this, but I cannot live with you as a smoker. And I wouldn't have started this if I'd known. And so I'm going to go. Um, and, and even if you don't choose to do that, I think that it will help you not to have decided in advance. I'm not allowed to leave my husband over smoking. You definitely are. And then, yeah, I think Diana, your advice was really good. And, and again, I say this as somebody who started smoking at 15 and has quit at least 30 times since then. And actually you are catching me uh, as it happens in one of the longest quitting periods I've had in a pretty long time. I I had my last Mm -hmm. piece of nicotine of any kind back in August. And I feel very like grateful and excited and hopeful and also nervous. And I've certainly been here before. So I I feel this letter from the inside in a number of ways. Um, So I just think my, my last piece of advice to the letter writer is really to echo what you were saying, Diana, which is have a conversation with your husband that starts with, I don't expect that you're going to quit. If you ever do, I'll be very excited for a number of reasons, but I'm not going to assume that that's going to happen. So I want all our conversations around um, harm reduction and taking the kid's safety into account based on the assumption that you will not quit. And that might feel difficult. It might feel, especially for him, like, no, 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 we have to maintain the fiction that I'm just about to quit because otherwise I'll get really scared. But I just think you can't do that. You shouldn't try to manage his fears for him in that way. And then just say, assuming you never quit, what are some rules that we can come up with that make sense uh, in terms of like never smoking in the house? 
you know, I don't know if he's ever tried vaping, which is not necessarily like super healthy, but would at least cut down on some of the secondhand smoke risks. Again, not all. And again, just put like 19 asterisks next to that in case they're like, no, actually, it's way worse when you vape near people. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I still don't gi- mean. I, I'm giving you a giant asterisk right now. <laughs> I, I sorry, I mean like not like vape in the house because it's saf- safer. I mean like he still smokes outside. Um, I just mean so the the smell is less um, rather than mitigating health risks. There we go. There we go. No more asterisks. I'm not making health claims. I'm talking just about the smell. Yeah, whatever whatever it is that he does feel like he's capable of committing to in order to minimize the effect that it has on the kids. And then again, you don't make any promises uh, uh, about that. And I understand that you don't want to necessarily say like, by the way, I might leave you for this in three years, but just let's say the kids do develop asthma. Let's say the kids do develop really serious health conditions. Let's say you get really concerned about them and you're like, I love this man, but I don't want to keep running these risks. Then you should fucking leave him and you're allowed to. And that's it. That's my that's my rant on the subject, which is now that I've been down several different tangents about co-sleeping and what you're allowed to do and and what he's allowed to do and all that, I just want to move on to a delightful letter that I love. I love this letter. This one made me so happy. Okay. The subject is same name. Dear Prudence, I'm a newly out bisexual woman. And the process of coming out and explaining my sexuality to those close to me, yes, I'm actually bisexual, yes, it's a real thing, etc., has been a tricky and exhausting project. I finally feel like I'm in the clear with my family and have started a fun, happy, and relatively COVID-safe relationship with another woman. Things have progressed very quickly, and we're planning on introducing each other to family and close friends as much as we can, given current restrictions. We realize we now have a potential problem. We have the same first name. It's a very common name for women our age, but it's also kind of weird. We can laugh it off with our friends, but I'm worried that some of my family members who are less comfortable with LGBT people will think it's bizarre and use it to undermine our relationship. Neither of us have ever regularly gone by a nickname in the past, and our name is short and doesn't really lend itself to tweaking. Do you have any ideas or a script for how we can make our same name relationship seem normal to people who aren't comfortable with the existence of the relationship in the first place? Well, first of all, Congratulations. Congratulations to this reader. Sounds like you are on a really happy path of discovery this year in an yes. otherwise bummer of a year. So uh, this letter made me happy. Um, me too. <laughs> I also wanted to say that by the time I had finished reading this letter, I thought of at least two heterosexual couples who have the same first name spelled the same same way. And I also know someone who has married someone whose last name is their first name. So they are now name name, which is a whole new ballgame that I really enjoy. Uh, So so I I, want to start by saying this is not most definitively not a problem that is, uh, you know, solely faced by members of the LGBT community. And um, I think I think that's why the letter writer kind of knew to say at the end, like, I- I'm worried that the people who already don't really like the fact that I'm bisexual will simply seize on this as an excuse. And I think that's it. I think it. I think that's dead it. Like, if you came home with a boyfriend and you were both called Alex, people would probably make jokes about it and be like, oh, that's so wacky. But in a way that was very like, warm and sort of uh, like, oh, isn't this, isn't this kind of goofy? Isn't this like a fun little quirk about our lovely little stars, hollow, like quirky hometown? Um, and that if they do it to you too, it's because they want to be homophobic without anyone saying you're being homophobic. Yeah. I, I, this isn't a, this is not the problem 
and it's not even a problem. And the letter writer knows it's not a problem. The problem is we've got some people in your life who think it's bizarre and want to undermine the relationship. I tried for the since since the reader asked, I tried to think of a script. Uh, the closest I could come oh. up with was something to the effect of like, uh, "Hey, I know you've learned a lot of new things about me this year, and it's <laughs> a lot to take in. So I wanted to make it easy and give you one less new thing to learn. So uh, this is my partner, and they have the same name. There you go. Super easy. You'll never forget it. <laughs> that, that is so fucking of. cute. <laughs> Okay. I hope Diana, that's that is charming. No, that is delightful. <laughs> I love that. Um, okay, and good. It's, it's disarming as well, which is ideal. Uh, and, and I think if you do that, that's in the best case scenario. If there are people in your life that you think are a little iffy, using a script like that might at least help to acknowledge, uh, hey, I don't know how much of this is discomfort at my sexuality and how much of this is just discomfort at radically re-understanding parts of this person I thought I knew really well. And, you know, if, if it's the latter and if we wanted to extend that kind of generosity of spirit to those mm-hmm. folks, like here, here is a, here's your easy out. <laughs> Let's all have a chuckle and, and acknowledge that we're all learning new things. Yeah. And with yeah. one less new thing. And and then if people don't respond positively to that, then, I mean, think about all the money you'll save on stamps not having to send those people Christmas cards anymore. Yes. And and I think that's that's the road to take, which is you do the charming, disarming, jokey thing one time. And then if they keep being dicks about it, you can either rope in a better family member and say, like, I'm worried about this as a dynamic. Can you help me? Part of my fear is also that I know if I push back, I'm going to get a lot of you're being too sensitive. It's just a joke. And I would really like to minimize the amount of time I spend dealing with that um, and, and get them to, to, you know, carry that out on your behalf. If that's not possible, yeah, I think just really go with, hey, guys, I, I you know, we've already talked about this. I actually don't feel welcomed and accepted when you keep making the same jokes about my name. So, you know, is there a reason that you're not willing to stop after I've asked you a couple of times? And that is when I think it's time to turn up the heat a little bit. And again, that's still very polite. It's still very kind. It's just putting the sort of um, standard of what's normal away from whatever they feel like doing and back onto like what's polite and respectful. Um, and if they don't, yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with the way that you did it. There's nothing creepy or freaky about dating someone with the same first name. They just don't like gay shit. And they want you to feel bad about any gay shit in your life, to use a technical term. Personally, I'm really hoping that this relationship works out and they get everything in their household with monograms on it. Yeah. That's, that's just me. That. I love that. That would be amazing. Yeah. Ask for a lot of monogrammed gifts this uh, this Christmas. Ooh, this next one is just a good old-fashioned escalation. Ooh. I'm so glad you get to read it. I am too. Thanks for the honor. Mm -hmm. Subject, second generation affair. Dear Prudence, because of the lockdown, I offered my sister the use of my extra room as an office since she and her husband share a studio apartment. I came home early to find a naked man in my kitchen. We both screamed, and my sister ran out in my bathrobe. She had been having an affair with her coworker and used my house and my bed to screw around in. I told the man he had 10 minutes to get dressed and out of my home before I called the cops. I waited outside with my child. He left, and my sister came out. 
she told me I was overreacting. For context, our father spent years humiliating our mother with his affairs. My own husband died when our daughter was only three months old. I then discovered he had been having an affair with a friend that started before our engagement. It devastated me. My sister has always been the strong one. She hated our dad and urged our mother to get a divorce. She stopped my husband's mistress from trying to come to his funeral. I asked if she was leaving her husband for this man. She was angry and told me no and not to break up her marriage. My brother-in-law is a good, goofy man. I told my sister she dragged me into this mess and I wasn't going to lie for her. She could tell her husband the truth or I would. My sister told me she could see why my husband cheated on me. I was self-righteous and screechy. I told her to leave. We aren't talking and everyone is wondering why. My brother-in-law has called to ask me what happened. I let his calls go to voicemail. I feel completely broken. My sister was my rock during my husband's death. Now I know that I will never be able to look at her the same again. What do I do? So Mm. I have one note for the letter writer. Only one note. Other than that, I got to say, I I think you've comported yourself pretty well. Uh, I just think instead of saying, get out of my house or I'll call the cops, just say, get the fuck out of my house. That's my note. Um, <laughs> I think that, that was about my only note too. Like, yes. Yeah. It still works. It's it's still going to work in a situation like this where the guy, I mean, I think he probably wanted to get out of that house pretty fast. Um, <laughs> I don't think he needed encouragement. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just, just you, you could have just said, get the fuck out of my house and I would have given you an A plus across the board. You know, I want to be both mindful of the fact that obviously both of the sisters in question are bringing not only their own relationships to this disagreement, but also the memory of their parents' divorce and, and, and a lot of different situations. So it's, it's, a, it's a really loaded situation that's not just about what's going on. But I do just want to say, like, this is not one of those situations that's like, oh, it's not really any of your business. So like, she fucked this guy in your bed, you know? Like, she brought this to your house. You did not go seeking this fight out. You were not trying to make trouble. You have every right to be really angry and and not just in the sense of, you know, oh, you're cheating on your husband reminds me of when my husband cheated on me. Uh, It's like, you did this in my house, man. Like you forced me to find out so that now I have to either lie to my brother-in-law for the rest of my life or tell him the truth knowing it will hurt him. And that is something that she did to you. That is something that you are not responsible for. So that, I just think if there's anything on her part that's like, you know, you'd be breaking up my marriage. It's like, I didn't come over to your house in the middle of the day unannounced to see if you were sleeping with somebody else. I came home for lunch one day. So these are my, these are the two takeaways that I have that I think will help the reader get a little clarity around what they need to do. Mm -hmm. First of all, when your sister says that, uh, you know, don't break up my marriage. First of all, you cannot do that. You Mm -hmm. are not a family court judge. Uh, you don't manage divorce proceedings. Uh, she can break up her marriage or your brother-in-law can break up their marriage. That's something that only the two of them can do. So get that right out of there. Second of all, when your sister chose to marry your brother-in-law, he's now your family. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that happens here is people start to think, well, I don't know what to do here. Like, this is this is my family. This is my sister. Well, he's your brother. Like, that. that's not really, there, there are no two classes here. 
yeah. these are these are both members of your family. So I I think that it helps a lot to take that kind of distinction out of the equation. Uh, and I want to be fair, the reader didn't actually say something to that effect, but it's just really common uh, yeah. when you when, when when this happens in a family. You're like, well, I mean, they're my sibling. Well, yeah, this person married your sibling, so they're in your family now. I think that, as as Danny said, this this is not the old chestnut of running into your sister at the grocery store, walking real close to some man you don't know. This is right. not that case. And all the, you know, I think we've all learned uh, to be a little bit hesitant. We've learned enough through enough advice columns to, uh, you know, well, who, who knows who in right. this world is is managing like a polycule in 2020, man? Who right, knows? right, right, right. <laughs> This is not this case, man. Like, it's just disrespectful. Full stop. Don't mm-hmm. bring people to come sleep with you in your sister's office. Like, what? <laughs> like, your sister could be single and free and living life, uh, and this is still not okay. This is your office. <laughs> <laughs> it's so far down the list of like things that the sister has done that are not okay, but just like it was stupid on top of everything else. If you want to have an affair and not get caught, don't do it in the bed of your sibling that you know hates oh, infidelity God. more than anything. And like, I'm just I, like, I, I'd have to get a new bed. <laughs> yeah, I got to say, on some level, I think she kind of wanted to get caught or wanted to worry that she was about to get caught. And, and especially with that stuff about you saying like, you know, again, I don't think you should have yelled that you were going to call the cops, but also you didn't. And for her to say like, well, I borrowed your uh, apartment under false pretenses and I've been cheating on uh, my husband here in your bed. Um, and you know my husband and you love him and he's part of your family. But this is really about why your dead husband cheated on you. Like, oh my Oof. goodness, your sister Oof. has said something that I, I, I would put it in a close to unforgivable category. And so I guess I'm only bringing that up because I guess um, I want to caution you against, I think it's right to tell your brother-in-law. I think you want to tell your brother-in-law and I think it will be too painful for you to keep it from your brother-in-law. But I will also imagine that given how horribly your sister has behaved here, there's also going to be a part of you that will want to just like fuck her shit up as much as you possibly can. And I do want to encourage some restraint there. And so if part of you feels like once you tell him, you're just like, I want to tell everybody, I want to share every detail, I want her to be maximally humiliated, that if you do catch that coming up in yourself, I would encourage you, journal some of that stuff, talk to a therapist about some of that stuff, take your time, think carefully. Um, You don't have to keep this secret for her. You're allowed to be very angry with her. Um, You're entitled to be very angry with her. But, um, you know, I don't want you to go so far that you, you know, Go too far, I guess, is the end of that sentence. A lot of the stuff that I think the letter reader is feeling is super legit. And the appropriate place to talk about it is the group chat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get get your get your friends together and talk a lot of shit. And that's totally fine. Um mm-hmm. and, but in as far as speaking to your brother-in-law, uh frankly, I I would do it because yeah. your brother-in-law sounds like a, a decent man who doesn't who shouldn't be treated poorly. And regardless of who it is that is treating him poorly, he does not deserve to be treated poorly. And if you are centering that as the as what you are doing, if the point of what you are doing is something bad is being done to a good man, and I have the ability to intervene so that that bad thing is no longer done to that good man. 
And yeah. that is the that is the sum total of what is within your power to do. You do not have the ability to make your sister feel guilt. You don't have the ability to undo all of the terrible things that people in your family have done. Uh, but you do have the ability to not let your decent, goofy, lovely brother-in-law continue to be hurt. Yeah. I I understand. I, I am also a member of the club of people who used to be very, very close to their sisters, and now they don't talk because they disagreed so strenuously with their sister about a manner, matter of ethics that they no longer respect her. Um, it's awful. It's horrible. My sister was one of the people I was closest to on the planet, and now we don't talk. And uh, th- that's very, very sad. So, you know, part of it is just like my advice is like, be really sad, be really angry, be really hurt. Um, I'm sorry. It's awful. That's it. That's the end of my advice there is just, I get it and it sucks. Diana, thank you so, so much. You wonderful French genius. I know <laughs> you're not you really so French. Thank you so much. But. Well, you know, if I just ha 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 with enough emphasis, eventually I'll convince all of them that I am. I hear French people love it when Americans do that. They find it delightful. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, I have been really, really nervous about doing this for you. You asked me to do this, I think literally years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. So that this is how long it took me to get over that fear. Uh, so thank you very much. And if I give any bad advice in this episode that any of the listeners disagree with, uh, that is Phil's fault. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. First of all, it's not simply unique to female friendships that someone could sort of realize at one point like oh I've sort of enjoyed this friendship because of this assumption I had about a problem I thought my friend would always have but I think specifically the nature of this thing which has been you know a woman can either have a really fulfilling career that pays well or a man who loves her and not both and again the underlying thing there is because men don't really like it when a woman does well and so I wonder if part of the fear here is like I had the great guy Maybe because I wasn't super high powered when we met. And if I ever did somehow get promoted or really pursue my career, my husband would not actually be there for me. And so part of me is aware that the fulfilling family life I enjoy is really dependent upon my always coming in second in a very real way. At which point, you know, maybe you should open that big old can of worms. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.